Public Affairs. Could I have your attention, please? I <laughs> uh, would, would like to remind people to please turn off their cell phones because uh, the session is being recorded. My name is Graham Greenlee. I'll be the moderator today. Okay, uh, first we'll have the speaker for 25 to 30 minutes, and then we'll break for lunch. And uh, then we reconvene at about one o'clock for our question and discussion period. Shaw TV uh, tapes the SACPA, SACPA presentations and they use ex excerpts in their twice daily 2 and 10 p.m. broadcast. The cost of today's session is $12. Please put your money in, in a basket on the table, uh, except for the speaker doesn't have to pay. It's not really a free lunch because he has to work for his, his lunch. Uh, someone from SACPA will, will be around to collect the money a little bit later. Would somebody at, at each table please count it to make sure everybody has paid? Okay, uh, today's topic is uh, what does the future hold in terms of new job opportunities? Presenter today is uh, Dr. Richard Mueller. Dr. Mueller is a professor and chair in the Department of Economics and a research affiliate at the Re Prentiss Institute for Global Pro Population and Economy, both at the University of Lethbridge, where he has been since 2000. He is also associate director of the Education Policy Research Initiative at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Mueller has a wide range of interests and has taught and given presentations in Europe, Asia, the US, and Latin America. He was seconded to Statistics Canada in Ottawa from 2009 to 2011. His research has been published in various economics and higher education journals, a number of edited volumes and reports and highlighted by various media outlets. He holds a BA Honours and an MA from the University of Calgary and a PhD from the University of Texas at Austin. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mueller. Okay, well thanks all for coming out today. Um, I'm uh, looking forward to going, I go back to Texas on Saturday, so I'm looking forward to that. I've been, uh, haven't been back to the University of Texas since I graduated, so I'm looking forward to uh, eating lots of brisket and, uh, and, and uh, things like that. But I, this is sort of my last major thing I have to do before I leave, so I'm gonna start off with a caveat here. And I was sort of, uh, as I was sort of starting to research this whole topic, which kind of has moved me outside of my comfort zone a little bit. Uh, I don't normally look at these kind of things, and certainly economists don't like to forecast. So I'm sort of giving you this warning here. Beware the punditry, no matter how well degree they are, or well-spoken, or well-coiffed, 
okay? Don't assume they know any future any better than you do, and don't assume you're such a genius either, okay? <laughs> so we want to sort of start with that uh, kind of thing. So this is something uh, economists hate to do. I think any sort of social scientist hates to forecast. And so I'm just going to start try to give you some sort of ideas about uh, uh, the way the labor markets are going globally and, and, and in Canada uh, more specifically, and then to sort of see where I... Uh, you know, some of the issues I think are important moving forward, okay? So these aren't projections per se. I'll let the weather men and weather women take care of those because they make us look good when it comes to our projections. So it's something we don't uh, normally like to do as economists. So let's just, I just want to talk a little bit about some of the recent changes in the labor market, again, globally and in Canada as well, and some of the things that I, I sort of see and I consider to be important uh, moving forward again. Uh, we hear a lot about this lately, all these topics, the rise of precarious work. And what do we mean by that? You know, if we want to sort of be polite about it, we call it the gig economy, right? Just like we call the alt-right, alt-right when we, in fact we could call them something a lot worse, I suppose. But uh, the gig economy. So there's lots of things going on these days, okay? We have a lot more fixed-term contrasts, especially, especially in the U.S. But this is, like anything else seems to happen in the U.S., it seems to filter to Canada sooner or later. And so I try to keep an eye on what's going on in the U.S. And of course, and, and, and hopefully we can uh, stop the bad ideas from crossing the border and, and allow the good ones to come in. So we have a lot of fixed-term contracts in the U.S. right now, a lot of outsourcing uh, going on, of course. We'll talk about globalization in a minute uh, a bit more. Uh, part-time work is an issue. Obviously, a lot more part-time jobs, certainly in Canada, and I'll show you some numbers in a, in a moment here. Uh, temporary employment, okay, people are sort of going between temporary contracts and don't really have those nice uh, uh, jobs anymore. At least this is starting. It's not quite as bad as people seem to think it is, okay, uh, the, the temporary employment. And, of course, a lot of irregular hours. Uh, you know, ever since we invented, uh, you know, uh, electrical lighting, we've been able to work 24-7 shifts, and that's only getting worse, of course, when it comes to uh, uh, technology, right? We're sort of always on call. I'm, I'm bad. I can't leave my cell phone alone for more than five minutes. I sort of feel naked without it, so, uh, and I, but after doing this presentation, I'm rethinking that uh, odd relationship I have with my cell phone. Uh, so in terms of the share of temporary workers, contractors, freelancers in the U.S. workforce, these are some recent figures increasing from about 10.1% in what, 2005 to 15 0.8% in 2015. So it's not this sort of catastrophic change that sometimes the media has you believe, but the trend is certainly there. Okay, so in other words, what we're moving away from is these nice sort of, uh, you know, sort of post-graduation to retirement jobs where you were loyal to the company, they were loyal to you, you got a nice pension at the end of it and a gold watch and, and you enjoyed your retirement. That's not the case anymore and it's becoming increasingly less so. Of course. So this, and in Canada, here's here's just some uh, numbers for Canada. Much more uh, part-time work in Canada. Uh, some recent stuff, and I, I looked at. I can't read it here. I looked up the most recent statistics, and these these are from October 2016. If you look at the January 2017 uh, labor force survey uh, in Canada, the part the growth of part-time jobs has been quite. Uh, it's continued. If you look at the chart on the right there, um, certainly that they uh, outpaced the growth of full-time jobs. I think between January 2017 or since January 2016, so the year ending January 2. 2017, the, late, uh, the amount of employment in Canada grew by about 1.5%. Uh, the number of full-time jobs in that grew by 0.6%. The number of part-time jobs by over 5% year over year. So, and that, you know, so this trend is sort of continuing. And we see a lot of this. I just sort of uh, threw these numbers together yesterday. I got some OECD da data for the U.S., Canada, and, and uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, the United Kingdom, there's a big break in the series there. They're missing a, a data point, so that's what's sort of going on. But you, this goes all the way back to 1976, the earliest data we, we have for Canada anyway. And so, you know, just a little more than 1% of the labor force was involved in part-time employment then, and now that's increased to, to close to 5%. So again, these are sort of incremental shifts, but as I tell my students, 
Okay, these small changes over time compound, right? And so this is why we, we sort of worry about these things, or we try to start worrying about them now before they become uh, uh, too huge an issue. So we've got this precarious work thing happening. Oh, we also have the end of the 40-hour week, and not in a good way. And a lot of this stuff I'm, I'm, I'm taking is not from sort of this uh, sort of fringe publications. I think these, these this uh, little bit comes out of uh, the Financial Times, the big financial newspaper in London. A lot of other sources I use are, you know, uh, Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, things like that uh, as well. So this is not the sort of the, the, the fringe people talking about these issues anymore. This has made it mainstream now, okay? And so the Financial Times talks about the end of the 40-hour work week. And not in a good way, okay, in, in the sense that, of course, more people are working a lot more hours now. This is especially true since the financial crisis 2008, right? A lot of people were laid off. I could show you figures if I had them, uh, showing, of course, the decrease in employment falling in 2008, especially in the U.S. and the U.K. and other countries around the world, uh, not so bad in Canada. And then, of course, when they start rehiring again, they don't replace the people that they laid off. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, we have an increasingly insecure job market, even amongst those people that are, you know, reasonably well-educated and presumably safe in the labor market. I'm a tenured professor. There's supposed to be no safer job in the world than that, and we don't feel safe at the university, okay, uh, a lot of times for various reasons that I'll get into in the, if the mic gets turned off. Um, <laughs> and if you buy me a beer or two, okay. So we have an increasingly insecure job market. Workers are scared to, a lot of times to turn down the overtime that's being offered to them, okay? Uh, you know, they're showing up sick, too afraid to call in sick. And of course, this is not very good for productivity, make everybody else in the office sick, right? Uh, you know, they're, they're too afraid to complain about dangerous and maybe illegal uh, working conditions, okay? Uh, there's been a huge decline in union protection. I'll put up some numbers for Canada and the US in a minute here to talk about that. And again, the technology makes us available 24-7, uh, so we never really get a break, right? And, and, and you know, you get this all the time, especially students. <laughs> again, are so used to being in that uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, attached world where they're, you know, they can they have access to information anytime. And of course, uh, you know, I get uh, emails from students sometimes going, hey, I emailed you 10 minutes ago, what's going on? You haven't responded yet. I don't know if that's, I know that's not doing me any good, and it's probably not doing, uh, the, you know, the rest of us that are sort of that attached uh, any good as well. And then, of course, we had the downsizing again following the financial crisis, as I mentioned, so that means more work per person. So we're basically getting more work out of each individual, which productivity-wise isn't such a bad thing, but socially might not be a great thing to happen. So here's the unionization rates in, in the United States and Canada. Okay, so, you know, since the 1920s, you know, after the 1920s, and of course in, uh, in the 1920s and 30s, we had this huge increase in unionization in both countries. Uh, things started to get sort of whittled away uh, in the U.S. in the 70s, and then of course, you know, following Reagan, et cetera, you know, right-to-work states, all that kind of stuff. Whereas in Canada, we sort of maintained the rate of unionization fairly high. It kind of peaked where does it say here, about 1990 or so, and it's been sort of declining ever since. And we can kind of take a closer look at that in terms of Canada, unionization rates here. I, I guess sort of the baby blue line there is men, uh, the dark uh, blue line is both sexes together, and the red line is women. Women have kind of maintained their unionization rates, not so much men. In fact, women have increased them a bit, and that's because the more women in the labor force are doing jobs that tend to be unionized. So we still have that sort of uh, uh, attraction, for whatever reason, of, of women going into healthcare and, and, and teaching, things like that, both heavily unionized kind of sex sectors. For men, there's been a precipitous drop, of course, uh, in these data here since the mid-80s or so. And uh, now the unionization rates are much lower than they, they were uh, back then for men. And that's because, of course, of the loss of these good-paying, you know, manufacturing jobs, you know, resource extraction jobs, things like that over time, okay? So we spend a lot of time up until now worrying about young women uh, in particular. We got to start worrying about our men. You know, we really do. Uh, there's, and I, I can, again, talk about that a little bit later. Maybe there's a question about that. But, but this, is, this is a big problem. 
uh, in the labor markets right now, this decline in, uh, in, in male participation. Another thing that we hear about all the time is automation. Automation is a huge issue. You know, so robotics, things like artificial intelligence, right? We're, you know, we're world leaders in Canada, apparently, when it comes to artificial intelligence and, and making those types of, uh, uh, of hardware and software. Uh, and this could cause a lot of major disruptions. Uh, but so far, they really haven't caused a lot of major disruption yet. Again, this could be in the future sometime. I don't know. Again, my crystal ball is not necessarily any better than yours uh, or anybody's. But, uh, you know, we're going to see more of this uh, disruption, I think, take off. Uh, over time. You talk about something like driverless trucks, which are uh, huge, okay? I know people that work in the oil, oil sands, and of course, one of the major jobs up there is transportation, or driving big trucks, or driving buses, or driving anything like that. Also, we have driverless cars, and I can't wait, because I hate wasting my time driving. Uh, but certainly, it's going to be disruptive for a lot of people, and a lot of these you know, jobs were well-paid, unionized kind of jobs, and people are going to be uh, uh, disrupted from that type of employment. Uh, a lot of complaints now about the new technology used uh, to control worker schedules. Again, we've got the 24-7 thing happening with, uh, with uh, 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 you know, cell phones and, and our connected world, okay? Uh, expanding global supply chains, and this weakens labor's, bar labor's bargaining position. You know, this is sort of a theme that uh, I'll talk about a little bit later, perhaps, as well, is, you know, we sort of have this, well, I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> Give you something to look forward to. Okay, so automation also creates jobs. Let's not forget that, okay? We need the people to do the artificial intelligent program, the machines to do the work we want them to do. So it's not uh, just a net, lo it's not a, a, a loss of jobs completely. It is a net loss of jobs probably because of automation. Uh, but that's the way sort of it's always been. The bigger problem, I think, is the owners of this automation, the people that come up with these ideas and, and have the intellectual property. These are the people that are going to become wealthier because of it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, there are some bad implications for that, which I'll discuss, uh, I hope, in a minute. How are we doing for time? Okay. Globalization. We've heard all about globalization. We just, uh, well, we, I shouldn't say we, they. Uh, the Americans have elected, you know, for better or for worse, uh, you know who. Um, and uh, globalization was a big theme, uh, and, and, and certainly a, a large reason why he was elected is a large reason why we have political frustration in Canada and Alberta, I think, as well. Uh, but certainly globalization has benefited the countries as a whole, but there have been, in, 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 in sort of speaking economics, adverse distributional consequences. That's how we sugarcoat something, basically saying that the distribution of income has gotten uh, much less equal over the last little while, not so much in Canada, more so in the U.S. and the U.K. and other countries. Uh, but I'll talk about that in a minute again. But, uh, you know, and, and, and this isn't a bad thing. Globalization isn't a bad thing because what happens is, of course, is we, we, we export skill-intensive kind of products and we import labor-intensive products or sort of low-skill. So this is going to raise the demand and the, and the, and the wages for high-skilled people in our economy. And, but it's going to lower the demand and wages of less-skilled workers. And this is a big problem. So we, in essence, have a redistribution from the poor to the rich as a result of this. I mean, globalization does get a bad rap. It's, it's been good for us in general. It hasn't been good for some of us, okay? I was just being interviewed out in the hall before I came in here, and um, I said, you know, um, certainly in terms of globalization, if, if we didn't have it, we'd be paying a lot more for the clothes we're wearing today, et cetera. So we save a few bucks on clothes, okay, every year, maybe $100 and $200 in clothes, whatever it is, because of globalization. So we're all benefiting from that. That doesn't make the news, okay? I've never seen, you know, that the front page of the, of the Globe and Mail. Somebody saves 100 bucks on clothes because, of, you know, they're being imported from wherever. Okay, and there's a whole host of other issues too. What does make the news, of course, is when a factory closes down because it's relocating to Mexico or to, to uh, you know, uh, China and, uh, and, you know, a thousand people lose their, lose their jobs. 
Okay, so, and that's you know and that's certainly hugely important, but uh, we don't want to forget the benefits of globalization uh, as well. Now, the, the bigger problem, of course, we have these broken promises, and this is how Trump got elected, uh, largely, of course. Uh, you know, the more recent in the economics literature, for the longest time, we sort of said, okay, you know, trade is a good thing, and it is a good thing in terms of making societies as a whole better off. We didn't tackle the distributional consequences very well. And a lot of times in our economic models, for better or for worse, we, call it, we talk about human capital. So we basically treat people like capital, okay? And that capital is supposed to be mobile. And what that basically means is that if you lose your job in Lethbridge, Alberta, you just up and move to where the next best opportunity is gonna be, okay? Uh, without questioning it. And of course that doesn't happen. We're people and we have ties to areas and, and, and friends and family and uh, we're not capital in the sense that a piece of capital equipment, physical capital is not gonna complain if you move it or not feel sad when they leave or things like that. So, so this really was a broken promise of globalization. One reason why when a lot of jobs in the Midwest went to China, uh, um, they were never replaced, okay? And you sort of have these decaying factory towns all over the, the U.S. Midwest if you get a chance to travel, or all over the, you know, a lot of places, of course, not just there. But this came along, globalization, it came along with, you know, the whole idea of this sort of neoliberal agenda, right? Lower taxes, liberalization, let's get the government out of the economy and stop regulating things to death and yada, 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 you know, that we all heard about. And of course, the benefits were supposed to trickle down and make everybody better off, but they never really did. Okay, so the benefits of globalization never really, there were distributional consequences that we're not too thrilled about this day and age, and we're starting to tackle them, even economists, which is probably okay, finally. All right. So, of course, now we have, uh, you know, government cutbacks, things and that, and people, low-income people have been told to accept wage rollbacks and cuts in public services because they have to compete in a globalized economy. Okay, so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a lot of ways. Let's cut taxes, you know, all of a sudden we don't have money for social programs and things like that, right? And, of course, it's going to be the people that are less, least able to adapt to, um, you know, the sort of polarization uh, that are going to be harmed the most, and we have to think about that. So this is just a, a polarization. Again, this is what's hugely important, I think, in a lot of ways, automation, globalization. Uh, they create new and different kinds of jobs, no question about that. Some are good, okay? Uh, but many are pushed out of jobs that don't pay as well or as rewarding as the old kind of jobs that they, they, they might have had before. So again, we, you know, we might benefit from that. We get cheaper, cheaper stuff, uh, goods and services as a result of that, but of course, people are being displaced. Uh, this is, I think this is why we're starting to think about things now, and we didn't before, because now we have the devaluation of labor. It's gonna continue up the income ladder. So now we're getting into that middle class, right? Before it was just a bunch of you know, lower income people being displaced or whatever, nobody really cares. Now you have educated people being displaced. An example of this is they automate surgery now, and they're just waiting for approval to, to automate surgery. So you can go in and have a machine rip out your gallbladder, and apparently they can do it a lot easier and a lot cheaper and a lot uh, more effectively than a surgeon can, okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not expecting that, you know, the Alberta Medical Association or the Canadian Medical Association to sit, you know, sit uh, idly by while this happens, if it does happen, right? There's going to be a fight. There's going to be a big fight about this. And again, it's because it's hitting those sort of educated groups with a lot of political clout uh, in a big way. Uh, there's something called no-shoring now. Automation has allowed us to eliminate, again, some of these higher-paying uh, knowledge jobs uh, that did exist out there, uh, do exist, and, and, but they're sort of uh, dying as well. Sort of, sort of the routine kind of tasks uh, that a machine can do. So there's, I was reading about examples in Japan, insurance companies, they can get a, a computer to look at the insurance claims, and I guess they're much more accurate at sniffing out fraudulent claims than the humans were that were, you know, were having to deal with them. And again, so we have the automation surgery, you know, have the, the, the truck drivers, a lot, of, a lot of routine legal things can be done now, of course, um, which 
hope nobody's a lawyer here. Okay, <laughs> okay I'll wait till the mic's off. Um, again. But again, some of those legal things, okay, and we, can, and we still keep pumping out lawyers like crazy, and, and we, and we shouldn't be uh, anymore. Uh, so we got no, no, shoring, no shoring going on. Uh, and so this autom automation and di digitizing may bring back jobs to the country that lost them, but without many new jobs being created. And, I, and an example of this is Adidas. Uh, they're returning to Germany in a pilot project right now. A lot of their, uh, of course, sneakers and clothing and things like that are certainly made in Asia and other places around the world. These are moving back to Germany now because they have 3D printer technology. They use the CAD-CAM design and, and they can get the machines up and running fairly quickly to put these things out. And I didn't know this, but apparently the sneaker market or the you know, running shoe market is pretty fashionable. Okay, and things change fairly quickly and people want those new designs immediately. And of course, if you have to, you know, have your design team in Germany design something, and then uh, you know, take it to China or whatever to, to, to have these things assembled, to have everything retooled for the latest uh, you know, uh, running shoe design or whatever it takes, and then have the you know, final product shipped by ship back to Europe. It takes a long time. Okay, so if they can automate this kind of stuff and do you know do the CAD CAM design right there, do it quickly, get the 3D printer to to, to uh, you know print out these running shoes and other automation to stitch them together, or whatever they can be to the market much faster. Okay, so the jobs are coming back a lot of times again because you know we do have that sort of high skilled labor force uh, in the Western world that can do things like uh, uh, the 3D printing, but the old, those old jobs are not coming back. You know the old manufacturing jobs, your father's manufacturing jobs, are not coming back. Uh, so as always happens, I always get scooped by the president of the U.S. and I hate it. I'm getting tired of it. Okay, but so uh, <laughs> you know, a little while ago I was so I was sort of doing this, and I think I was sitting at home one morning, and, and, and uh, Obama came on TV with his uh, farewell address, or maybe it was in the evening. Anybody remember? I forget when. Must have been in the evening. I'm hardly ever at home in the daytime. Okay. Um, so what he says, I agree our trade should be fair and not just free, but the next wave of economic dislocation won't come from overseas. It will come from the uh, relentless pace of automation that makes any good middle class, many good middle class jobs obsolete. And so we must forge a new social compact to guarantee our kids the education they need, uh, the work uh, to give the workers the power to unionize for better wages, to update the social safety net to reflect the way we live and not make more reforms to the tax codes or corporations and individuals who reap the most for their new economy. Don't avoid. Okay, Obama, that's a run on sentence. <laughs> okay. Anyway, you can read as well as I can. So he, he's, he's right on this. And this is sort of, you know, one of the things I started thinking about. Oh, I, I was thinking about it long before he gave this in his uh, sort of farewell address. But of course, this is a little bit of a dig to the incoming president as well. So we're, we're seeing this polarization in Canada too. Here's, here's something recently between 1997 and 2015 about the, uh, the uh, 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 job growth by wage category, and it's a little misleading on the vertical axis there, it says thousands of dollars, that's not true, it should be thousands of jobs uh, there. And so some, somebody, uh, CIBC I think, they, they did this and they did a little analysis uh, of uh, jobs and, and wages in Canada and, and sort of divided things up of course to below and above average jobs. And most of the growth in the jobs over the last 18 years or so, 20 years say, has been in these jobs that pay below average, okay, uh, not above average. Okay, not above average in a lot of ways uh, as well. So that's sort of the, the big yellow line there, 50 to 100% of average wages. So uh, what else? And here's the distribution of income in Canada. I could, lots of work being done on that today, uh, the last few years by economists, of course. And so this, these data go all the way back to 1920. And it looks at the market share of, of, of income of the top 1% of the tax filers. So these are people in Canada, I think, making over $220,000 a year. I think that's about the cutoff, give or take. 
And of course, if you sort of read across from you know, current times when we have about you know, 12 percent, 13 percent uh, you know, of income going to the, the top 1%, uh, you sort of read backwards there, and, and you know, it, it hasn't been since the like, 30s or so that we've seen this type of income distribution. I could cut the data differently, but the, you know, the lesson's still going to be the same. Uh, that's, you know, the top income shares are getting more money than they have uh, for quite a while, okay, at least since the Second World War. And so, you know, whether or not you view this as a problem, not all economists do, uh, I think it could be a bit of a problem. Uh, et cetera. So uh, again, here's sort of the percentage change in the market income shares of tax filers by percent, percentile income group. Okay, and again, you sort of see the, the, the lines get much larger as we go from the left to the right there. And the reason is, is because, because the bottom 50% has, has come out behind, okay, 28.4% uh, over this, what, 32-year period. Um, and then at the top, 50% have increased by 4.7%. Okay, okay, fair enough. But that, even then, the distribution within that top uh, 50% hasn't been equal at all. Most of the income gains have gone to the top 0.01%. Okay, uh, so uh, this is a colleague of mine at McMaster. I think Mike Beal did this. Um, he looks at the he looks at the uh, you know, really narrow slices of the top income, and uh, of course, there's been quite quite astounding growth in the top 0.01%. A lot of this is, or in the in the top 1% in general, a lot of this is you know we always hear about financial services and those nasty financiers and and uh, things like that, and that's certainly part of it, but what's really going on here too is, the, is an increase in the uh, pay, payment to professionals a lot of times. So we have you know, medical doctors and things like that uh, making a lot more money, and this is just income. This is just uh, market income. Uh, of course, a lot of professionals have really f fancy ways of hiding their income and sharing their income with their family so they don't have to claim it as income tax, right? They can declare it as dividends on their professional corporations and pay less money at the time. And how we got to that, I don't know. <laughs> Why do we pay less for dividends, you know, income from dividends than we do from uh, five? Oh, really? Okay. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Eh? Okay. I'll skip that one. This just sort of shows uh, selected markets. This is much more interesting. These data are from the United States. And what these show basically is the lack of income mobility in the U.S., okay? The American dream is dead. It never really was there, okay, in terms of income mobility. What this shows then, if you read from the top to the bottom, is these are the cohorts of people in the 1940s, 1950s, 60s, et cetera, people born in 1940. What are the chances that they're going to earn more than their parents did, depending on the level of income of their parents? Well, of course, in the 1940s, if you were born in 1940, you're kind of born at a right time in a lot of ways. By the time you hit the labor market, things are going to be good, so there's a good chance you're going to do well in the, lab uh, in the labor market and, and, and outpace your parents who lived through the Great Depression and, and all those other things. Um, but that's changing, obviously. As each successive cohort here, we go from 1940 to 1980, the chances of making more than your parents decreases, uh, and decreases quite a bit. And here's how it, it, uh, it uh, a different way of presenting uh, the data. So this is, uh, you know, mobility by cohort, uh, again, in the United States. And again, the chances of, of, of uh, making it a poverty, in particular in the U.S., is pretty slim. There's that American dream, but that's what it is, a dream, right? Like somebody said, if you want to live the American dream, you move to Denmark, because that's where it is. And in Canada, we're not so bad yet. There's much more income mobility in Canada for various reasons. So we're much more egalitarian uh, than the U.S., okay? Um, the results of polarization, again, we sort of get this gig economy kind of thing happening. The Guardian newspaper, pretty uh, well-read newspaper uh, out of the UK, talked about, you know, sort of have this polarization of work, right? Some people are doing really well, other people aren't doing very well. So what do we see in the UK, and they just use this as an example, is, is automated car washes. It's, it's, it's now, you know, you know the, the automated car washes aren't worthwhile to, 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 uh, to make anymore, okay? Because there's such low-wage labor that will wash your car by hand for cheaper. 
okay? And so there's, this, again, this polarization. We get this low-wage uh, economy going on. Sweden uh, and the U.S. both have high female labor force participation rates because of the availability of inexpensive daycare. Sounds good? Quite different in both of those cases. So Sweden provides high-quality daycare with highly trained teachers subsidized by the government. So my understanding is, is even the daycare, that all, all the teachers there have university education. In the U.S., people take their kids to daycare because it's cheap because there's a lot of cheap wage, uh, low-wage labor uh, to do this. Now, you tell me in the long run which country is going to come further ahead, Sweden or the United States, uh, their children eventually. I think the answer is obvious. Uh, I already mentioned this one, I think. So some solutions. I'm running out of time here. Lifelong learning, eh. You know, again, I, you know, I, what we're sort of expecting in the future, people are going to have to be more flexible about things. You know, at the university, I sort of see this. You know, 30-some years ago when I was an undergrad, they were complaining about we weren't, you know, universities weren't cream skimming anymore. I think about 10% of the high school students went to university back in the 80s, in the early 80s. Uh, now we're about 30%, okay? And so, uh, you know, we're definitely not cream skimming now in a lot of ways, okay? The, the good students are as good as they've ever been, uh, but we're uh, not letting, you know, we have students with different attitudes, want sort of more uh, vocational training, things like that. That's changing, okay? That's really changed a lot. And I think we need sort of this lifelong learning. We're gonna have to sort of learn things and, and relearn things. And an example of this is the, um, where is it? The General Assembly. They offer short courses for people to, to retrain them. There's no reason people should have to go back to school, you know, when they're, laid off from their manufacturing jobs and do a four-year degree. That doesn't make sense for a lot of people. So I think we're going to have to compact things. And we get the hybrid jobs now. There's analysis of exactly what's going on in jobs and, and what kind of uh, 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 skills are necessary, what comprise uh, jobs, what are the skills that comprise a job. And we can figure out which ones are going to be automated and which aren't and maybe you know, concentrate on retraining folks and, and things like that. So that's part of the thing. Um, employers are really bad at supplying on-the-job training. Okay, in Canada, they're always talking about, and they're, you know, now they're infiltrating our universities and colleges and everything and telling us what, you know, telling us what to do because this is what we need. These are the skills we need in the labor market. Well, last I checked, the university wasn't exclusively in the job of training people for the job market. Okay, that's not our role. Okay, that's part of our role, definitely. We're happy to see our, our graduates go on and do well in life, but that's one dimension of life that they're going to do well at uh, as a university graduate. Again, increasing labor's bargaining power. You know, a lot of hard-fought gains over the years because of labor unions. And again, I'm pretty optimistic right now because there's a lot of uh, uh, people thinking about uh, these things. Uh, the American Economic Association meetings were just uh, held in, at the beginning of January uh, like they do every year because that's when hotels are cheap. <laughs> and when you've got 12,000 economists coming into into a city, it uh, makes a difference. So anyway, a lot of the U.S. inequality comes from rent-seeking. And by rent-seeking, we basically uh, talk about innovation. It gives rise to, rise to these economic rents, okay, because of the intellectual property rights and monopoly power. I'm, I'm feeling pressure. Uh, okay, I'm just going to end with one thing here. The World Economic Forum was in January 2017. They took notice of this, okay? And this says the elite was going to have to have to answer two questions, basically, okay? And you can read, so basically, in order to save them from the fate of the Bourbons or the Romanovs, of course, in France and, uh, and uh, Russia, uh, they're going to have to basically rethink things like distribution and polarization, the future of work, things like that. And this is not some wacky lefty publication. It's the Wall Street Journal saying this. And the people at the World Economic Forum were still eating their caviar and drinking their champagne, but now they're sort of thinking about what's going to happen to them, of course, if we don't deal with some of these problems. So I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> okay.